Amen. What a great day, huh? Isn't the Lord awesome? Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Well, this is Palm Sunday, and uh, I want to speak a little bit about Palm Sunday, and I want to speak about it in the words of faith and action, because what better example do we have, could we have, of faith and action than Palm Sunday? Uh, here's a man full of faith. What man could be, have more faith than Jesus? What man could be full of more faith than Jesus? But yet we see, beginning on Palm Sunday, his putting action to his faith so that his faith is alive. Amen? We've been talking about faith the last few weeks for a very specific purpose, and that is so that we can bring action to it. But faith has to be firmly identified, firmly entrenched, so that when we bring work or action to it, it's, it's bringing faith alive not bringing our self-works to evidence. Not about me. It's about Jesus. And as I put my action to my faith, then Jesus becomes alive and his faith becomes alive. Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to lay the foundation a little bit for those that haven't been here. I just want to recap a little bit. We spoke about faith being fundamental to the believer and that it's impossible, not just unlikely, not just hard to, it is impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we need to know that. And, but God gives us all a measure of faith. He does. He, he installs all of us a measure of faith. And we're told that in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, that's pride, but to think with sober judgment in humility that each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So every man, every woman has a measure of faith. And this tells us that because we need to have that measure of faith to be able to believe that Jesus can be our Savior. And then the Holy Spirit then draws a man and he comes in and, and ignites that and, and, and passions that, that measure of faith and, and makes it alive and makes it real. And then we act on that faith by asking Jesus to forgive us of our sin and then saving us from our sin. God intends all men to be saved. He doesn't intend for any man to miss heaven. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. All people, everyone that's alive on this earth or has ever lived, God wanted them to be in heaven. He wanted, that was his intention. But because he has given man free will, it's up to that free man to make that choice. And God has given the faith to do it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10 through 10, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is what we talked about last week, in that our, our original intention, God's original intention for mankind was not to be redeemed. Understand that. When we were made, we were made perfectly in the image of God that we could walk with God in the garden, 
that we could see God face to face in the garden. And the only way a man could see face to face to see God face to face and live is if he has never had sin. And so God and man walked hand in hand in the garden because God created man perfectly without the need for redemption. And it wasn't until man made the choice to sin did redemption have to become part of our plan. And so we said reverently that we are living now in plan B. Because God's plan A was no sin. And thank goodness God had plan B in store for us because with that we have redemption. We have a plan and that's what this Good Friday and this is what Easter is all about. It's about Jesus fulfilling plan B in our lives. And I'll take plan B. Anybody upset with plan B? I'll take it in a heartbeat because I know how significant it is. And you do too. And for that we're so thankful. But I want to talk, though, I think it's important that we, we understand what happened in the garden so that we can apply it to our life today. We read in Genesis that we were created perfectly. And we're also given in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, what our purpose is. If, it's not, if, we, if our purpose isn't to be redeemed, then what is our purpose? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God's purpose was for us to be in fellowship with him so that together we could tend the garden. And why that's so significant today is because we have a misconception in our religious viewpoints that grace and work don't go together. That grace and work are opposite. That we're saved by grace, therefore works are not required. Now there's a fine line here. I want to make sure we all understand that we are saved by faith. We just read it. By grace you have been saved through faith. No works here to save me. I've been saved through grace. Through, the, through my faith and my belief in Jesus, I'm saved through that. But then we have days two through eternity that have to come to have to follow that moment of conversion. This is what we're talking about today. We also spoke last week that God placed boundaries in the lives of Adam and Eve. And he places boundaries in the lives of us today. The boundaries that he placed on them were even in the goodness of the, creation, of the created garden. They still required boundaries. Boundaries there for are two reasons. Number one, boundaries are used as a way to test our love, test our faithfulness. God said, you can eat from any tree. And like we said last week, the garden was not skimpy. The garden was not just bare bones. The garden was opulent. The garden was beyond our even imagination of what God gave them. And he said, you can have all of it. But I have this one tree over here that I don't want you to eat from. A boundary. Again, God wasn't saying, I don't want you to eat from this tree because this is the best and I don't want you to have the best because I made the best over here and you can have all you want of it. But here's this thing over here, this thing that I don't want you to eat from because I want to test your love for me. Are you really going to listen? Are you going to obey me? See, it's so nice to have somebody tell you that they love you without having you put them in a half Nelson. 
<laughs> if you've got to put somebody in a headlock and then force them to say, I love you, that love doesn't mean a lot, does it? No. Have you tried it? <laughs> Never had. Well, don't. It doesn't work. But when somebody says, I love you, out of their free choice, wow, doesn't that blow you away? Amen. And I want to tell you guys, I love you guys. I really do. Well, thank you. But I really do. I, I mean, God has really developed a love for me, for people in this church. And I just want you to know I love you. The other reason that God puts boundaries in us is a level of protection. God never says anything that is going to hurt us. He never asks us to do anything that is for our, our, our negative or our, to, to, to be uh, detractful from us. So as we've said in this church many times, when God says no, what is he really saying? He says, don't hurt yourself. I'm telling you not to touch that because I know that that's going to hurt you. I know that long-term, ultimately, that's not for your benefit. It's going to hurt you. So therefore, I'm just telling you right now, because I love you so much, would you just not hurt yourself? Please, no, don't do that. Don't do that willful sin. Young people, don't have that, even though as enticing as that apple was to Eve, and she said she looked at it, it looked good. Sex looks good, but not if you're not married, right? I mean... It is a good thing, and there are a lot of things that God puts out there for us, but he says, no, don't touch it. Don't eat of it, because it will only hurt you. And the devil comes in and he says, well, did God really say? Does God really say that? Does God really mean that? Or is God just trying to keep the best things in life away from you? The devil is out there, folks, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him. So anyway, now let's get back to the garden. Here we are that, that Adam and Eve had the boundaries and they chose to push the boundaries. Not just push them, but extend out of the boundaries and they sinned. They sinned. Well, that changed everything. <laughs> I mean, the curtain came down at that point because everything changed with those two bites. First Eve's, and then Adam's. And life as we know it changed. Well, not life as we know it, life as they knew it changed. Our life has always been this way, but their life changed. And not just changed for them, but for all of creation. All of creation fell when Adam and Eve fell. And that puts us kind of where we're at today with Jesus riding on a donkey coming in to Jerusalem to become the perfect sacrifice to bring us back into a relationship with him. And that's where we are today. Now, as important as that is, and that is so important, and I, want, and I, and I just believe, I want everyone to believe how, how much I honor Plan B. But in so many ways, we put Plan B above Plan A. And I think when we understand that the fulfillment of plan B in my life brings me back to a point of zero beginning, okay? 
when I received Jesus in my life, and now I've received him, and he's, he's covered me with his blood, therefore the sin that I have is no longer there. He's not just covering it, he removed it. Okay, that's the, that's the atoning power of the blood of Christ. It just doesn't cover it. It makes red white. It makes what was there gone. And he never remembers it again. As far as the east is from the west, he doesn't remember our sin. Not that God can't remember, but God chooses not to remember as I choose to accept him. All right, so now my sin is gone. Now, here I am. I'm back at the garden level. Now, let's go back to see what he says. He says, now I want you to work the garden. Let's look at the word work for a minute here, okay? When I looked at the word work in that, excuse me, in that passage, the Hebrew word for work is abad, long a, bad, abad. And it's defined this way. To work, serve, labor, to worship, minister, work in ministry, to be plowed or cultivated, to be reduced to servitude, to be caused to serve. That's what the word work meant. When God said, I want you to work the garden, I want you to tend the garden, that's what the word work meant. Now, let me read to you what the English dictionary says today what the word work means. It means paid job, duties of a job, place of employment, time spent at place of employment, purposeful, purposeful effort, something done or made, means for energy transfer. Do you see how the definitions have changed? See, God's level of work always had something to do with servitude towards him, worship towards him, relationship towards him. Our definition today of work, because of the fall, and the synonyms for work are this, exertion, labor, toil, slog, drudgery, grind. Does that sound like fun? See, that's, that's the way we look at work today because of the fall of creation. We're, we now have to work hard at things today. The garden changed, and, and why is that difference of, a, of definition? Well, it's really important that we grasp this concept because there are many people that don't realize the seriousness and how serious God was when he gave man the choice to do what man chose to do. And then when man fell, the consequences of that sin are really, really bad. Really bad. I mean, really bad. And until we can grasp that concept, we don't have a really an understanding of how great plan B is. So many people think that when God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, that was just kind of taking them from this nice neighborhood, really, really nice neighborhood, to just one a little bit less. Not as nice. Didn't have maybe running water. Maybe they had to go dig their own well. I mean, just not as opulent, not as nice. It, it wasn't as, as comfortable as they were. And when I see that, it, what that means then is, is in the fall of man, maybe I'm not as bad as God's saying I am. Maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe the devil comes back to me and says, Are you really the, you're not really that bad. Let me, let me read to you in Genesis chapter 3 God's opinion. And God's viewpoint and his, what he did. And let's get to the seriousness of how bad it is. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
This is after they had the apple. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, (laughs) I love this, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. (laughs) Poor man, (laughs) bad woman. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. Man, do you see the blame game? Coming right, I mean, right from the beginning, the the blame game started, right from the very beginning. And there's so much to talk about. I don't take time there to talk about that. But I want to now go, now that we know what happened, I want to skip down to verse 16. This is the seriousness now of God's reaction to that. Okay, he says, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Oh, you poor lady. Okay, so he, he made it serious to the woman. This was bad news. I mean, I, I, ladies, I know you that have given childbirth. I've had four babies. I've seen my wife go through it. I'm trying to save myself on this one. Okay, now, let's, so the lady, he's, he's serious about Now, let's see who it says to Adam. And, and here's the deal. See, the, I think the reason why he gave Adam more responsibility in this because, see, God was told Adam what to do, and he was supposed to tell Eve what to do, and he didn't do a good job of it. He didn't control his household. Man, and we are, men, we are priests of our home. We are given the responsibility to guard our house and to lead our children, and to lead our family. Not to be dictators over them, not to be uh, Hitlers over them, but to be leaders by giving ourselves to them. Okay. Now this is what he said to Adam. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. Then God goes on to say, The Lord God made garments for skin of Adam, for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God said, The man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to touch or reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So clearly, God took very seriously the action of man's disobedience. And with that change in the garden comes a change in the type and the effort of work required to tend the garden. Because as we said yesterday or last week, God's original intention didn't change because man disobeyed. Okay? We, we talked of the example of, of a school teacher's lesson still is being taught, regardless if the child is misbehaving in class or not, that the, the teacher still has to teach the lesson. 
All right? So God's intention, God's lesson, God's plan for us to work the garden and attend the garden didn't change. It's always been there. His intention doesn't change because we screwed up. So now that we've been forgiven and now we come back, we come back to his original intention to work the garden. And this is why I think that so many false religions are based out of because they don't think we have to work. They don't think we have to have responsibility to do, not to earn our salvation, but to work the garden, to tend the garden that God created us for. Now let's talk about the garden. Let's talk about it in a couple different ways. First of all, let's understand that the garden is fallen. It's not the same garden. What God intended to work with joyful, probably not probably wasn't real hard work. I can't imagine Adam working really, really hard to grow things in a garden that was so opulent. It must have been pretty easy work because it was more worship. It was more relationship-based. But when the garden fell, the ground became stony and hard. And it took work to break through the crust of the earth to grow things. And more importantly, when we take a look at the garden, I think in a micro level, which is what I want to talk about today, a micro garden and a macro garden. And the difference is the micro garden is the garden of our heart. It's my life. The micro garden means small, personal. I have a garden to tend to. It's the micro garden of Mike Way. You have a micro garden. It is the micro garden of your life. You're to tend to that garden. The macro level, is the, meaning large, is the world at large. It's the community that we live in. So now, I want to talk about the micro level garden, which is my heart. When man fell, like the macro garden becoming stony and hard to grow things in and became weedy problems, the micro level also became stony and hard. Man's heart became hardened. It's not bent towards God anymore. It's evil. It's evil. And, I, and, and that's, again, something that's politically incorrect to say that because politically incorrectness is we don't want to admit that we're evil. We don't want to admit that we're bad. We want to say, no, we're not that bad after all. And that's because the devil keeps coming back in and he starts bringing that level of deception. Did God really say? Did God really say you were that bad? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 8, 21. The, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Recognize that our hearts... From childhood, until I have a conversion experience, and in all honesty, even after I still deal with it, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but our heart, man's heart, is evil. It's not good. I can't get goodness out of evil. Our heart fell at the Garden of Eden because we chose sin. Therefore, our heart is evil. And that's where a lot of people stumble. Because they think, I'm not that bad. I'm really not that bad. I'm better than the guy down the street. I'm better than that person over there. I'm a, I can live a good life and God's, God will be pleased with me because I'm really not that bad. And in all honesty, I know a lot of good people. Good people doesn't mean they don't have an evil heart. Goodness on the outside does not clean the inside. 
Because until they have Jesus that rejuvenates that heart and rebirths that heart, it's still evil, even though they've masked it with good. I know a lot of good people, don't you? Yeah. It's important that we understand this. It's important that we know that, that even though it's not politically correct, that we still understand that we need, the, we need the cross. We need the shed blood of Jesus to come in and apply his grace in our lives so that he can soften the soil of my, my garden. He can then spread the blood of Christ on my garden and soften it so that now I can receive relationship back and forth with him again. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So why is it important to understand that it's going to take work now to tend the garden? See, we have to realize that the enemy is still alive and he's still strong. He was in the Garden of Eden and he was strong then. Now, he's only 6,000 years stronger today. He's 6,000 more years of practice on people, on deception. And he's not our friend, by the way. I know that we have, we have, we have uh, uh, taken and we, we've made caricatures of the devil as a little red man in a devil suit, you know, with a tail and a pitchfork and horns and, and make him kind of cute and make him kind of, uh, kind of silly. But he is not our friend. <laughs> Even though that Tyban is a coach of the Red Devils of East Jordan. <laughs> I'm just joking, you know that. <laughs> but the scriptures tell us, First Peter, first five, first five, uh, chapter five, verse eight. It says, "Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour." That's not a friend. He's not there to help you do anything. He's there to destroy you. Understand the devil is out to destroy you, to take anything good that you have and to absolutely trample it and destroy you. He is not your friend. There is nothing that he has for you that will make you better. And all the subtleness of his deception, he is doing nothing to make you a better woman or a better man. Everything he does, he does to destroy. But yet, we fall so subtly into his little traps we play with him all the time like he's a kitten. We will take the things of this world. We'll take those little sins in our heart and we'll just cover them up and we'll, we'll call them something different. We'll take those areas that we know are sin. The Bible says is sin. We'll take that men, that thought of pornography. We'll take that greed. We'll take that level of freedoms that I can do what I want to do because I can. I live under grace. I can take those little bits of things and, and really what I'm doing is I'm playing in the enemy's camp. He's dancing all around me and he's just laughing at me. And he's saying, keep going, keep going. Yeah, you play that game. Go ahead. Play that game. Take that drink. Go ahead. Take that first cigarette. Take that first drug. Take that first part of sex. Go ahead. Start playing with the game and see if you can control it. Oh, yeah, you can control it. Yeah, you can control that. Come on. Come on. It's just one. It's just kissing. It's just messing around a little bit. It's just one drink. I can have one drink. It's just one cigarette. I'm telling you, gang. I'm telling you. There's nothing good in that. Not one thing. Not one person is ever going to wish I had another drink. 
Not one person's ever going to wish, I wish I would have smoked. I wish I would have been on drugs. I wish I would have had premarital sex. There will be no person that will ever wish they did anything that God is saying to me, no, don't do it because I have something better in store for you. You don't need to go there. I have more for you if you would just do the work to tend your garden, to keep the weeds out of your garden. I've softened it for you. I've given you new life. Why do you want to throw it away? Why do you want to allow the enemy to come in and plant seeds of deception in your life when he's saying guard it because the enemy is roaring like a roaring lion ready to pounce and destroy and to kill? Now, if that's the enemy, I want to stay as far away from him as I can. Don't you? Why do you want to play the game of rocking down the road of compromise? Why do you want to go down there and say, devil, I dare you. I dare you. I double dare you. You can't get me with that one. The Bible says, lest a man think he can't, he will fall. I didn't quote that exactly right, but do you know what I'm talking about? That's not in my notes. I should have had that one. That was a good verse, by the way. I should have had that one. He who thinks he stands. James chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, it says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do you see how subtle sin comes in? Sin doesn't come in like a roaring lion. Sin comes in like a little kitty cat. Oh, come on, that little cat's not going to hurt me. But that cat grows up into a roaring lion. And then it's too late. See, there are some passages here that tell us that the conversion experience is important, but once we're back at the garden and we've recaptured what God or what the enemy's taken away and we're back into that soft condition of our heart, we still have work to tend it. There's still a requirement of our heart to tend it. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you're struggling with this, let me see if I can bring this to bear a little bit. If you want to lose some weight, all right, let's say you want to lose 10 pounds. All right, now, in your mind, you can say, I want to lose 10 pounds. And I can really think about it, okay? And I mean, I can really be determined in my mind to lose 10 pounds. But yet, I see this cookie over here that we bought at Frisky's yesterday. <laughs> it was good. It was good. And I see that cookie, and I'm thinking, oh, I want that cookie. And so I take that cookie, and I sit down at the couch, and I eat that cookie. But yet, in my mind, I want to lose 10 pounds, I want to lose 10 pounds. Am I going to lose 10 pounds? How do I lose 10 pounds? I put the cookie down, and I go to the gym, and I work out. And I have to put action to my desires. My desire is to lose 10 pounds. But if I don't work at it, if I don't put my action to it, I'm going to sit there and gain a pound because I just ate a really good cookie from Frisky's. And they are good cookies. Here's another example. I'm in debt and I want to get out. I'm in debt and I have this credit card. And I have this desire to go buy what I can't afford. What do I do? Cut the credit card up. If you can't control the credit card, cut it up. Don't, let it, don't play in the, in, the, in the camp of deception thinking, oh, I can handle one more thing. I can. No, you can't. If you can't make a payment, you can't make a payment. Cut the card up. And then start making payments to get out of debt. Put work to your actions. 
men, probably more men and women, but I want to live a life of pure thoughts. I don't want to have sexual thoughts in my mind, all right? I want to clear this up because, see, when I'm driving down the road and I see a good-looking woman, my eyes are going to go to that woman, and that's okay. The first look's okay because I'm just noticing a beautiful woman. It's the second look. Right? If, I, if I let my eyes go back to that woman and say, whoa, that is a good-looking woman, and all of a sudden my mind starts reeling and the imaginations, you know, that's sin. So what do I need to do? I need to work at my mind and say, turn your head, Mike. Don't look at that woman. Yes, she's a nice-looking woman. That's fine. It's good. But don't let my mind run there. You know what that takes? Work. It takes effort to tend the garden. Okay, God's given me a soft garden. Why would I want to bring the seeds of pornography into my garden? Why would I want to plant a seed of greed in my garden? Why would I want to plant a seed of, of any life-controlling element or drug in my garden? Why would I want to? God's given me a soft garden. My job is to keep the weeds out. Now, I was going to do a video here, but I was told by my music team that I can't do this, so I'm not going to do it. But the young people would have appreciated it. So go home, Google Canton Jones, got to stay saved. All right? Got to stay saved. Go home, go, and you'll appreciate the video, at least the young people will, because they could understand them. But anyway, go home and Google it. Here's the deal, guys. I know it's getting late. Nobody becomes righteous. Nobody becomes holy. Nobody becomes a godly man by accident. You don't fall off and all of a sudden end up being a godly man. No, no more than if I was to slip and fall down, I would fall to the ground. I, I, don't, I fall down, I don't fall up. <laughs> the laws of gravity say I fall down. If I'm going to stand up, I have to work to stand up. I have to use muscles and energy and exert work to stand up, to go against the laws of gravity. The laws of sinful man say we fall down if I stop working. If I stop putting effort into my spiritual life, my spiritual life falls down. If I'm going to be a spiritual man, if I'm going to be a victorious Christian, I need to work to bring myself back up. And that is not through self-righteousness. It is through an increase of faith, believing that I'm doing a righteous thing for the right reason, and that is to please my Father in heaven. I'm pleasing my Abba, Father, because now I'm being obedient. The Word says, if you love me, obey me. If you love me, obey me. Jackie, would you come, please? Also, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, it says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, let me explain this, because this can be confusing. This is just after, this is the very last verse of chapter 5, where Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount. And he's talked about the Beatitudes, he's talked about salt and light, the fulfillment of the law, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye, love for enemies. Jesus has just laid it all out. And then at the end, he says, be perfect as I am perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is not a confusing statement because, first of all, God would never tell us something that we can't do. He would never give me a command that I can't fulfill. So what is he saying here? Is he telling me that I have to be perfect? I can't be perfect in my actions, but I can be perfect in my heart. I can be perfect in my intentions. 
And you know what that takes? Work. It takes me tending my garden. It takes me not allowing the, the things of this world to come in to give me distractions and, and, and to plant those seeds in my life that would hurt. So my, my perfectness is not in my action. And here's the beauty thing, beautiful thing of it. Because God knows that I can't be perfect, plan B is already in place. He's already given me plan B, and that is forgiveness of my sins. So what I do in the morning is I say, I wake up, I say, Lord, I know who you are. You're worthy. You're my God. You're my king. You're my savior. Would you give me the, the, the work today that you want me to do? And as I walk through my life, oh, I might slip a little bit. I might make a mistake. <laughs> Jesus says, well, I knew you would. Now, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to work. I'm going to say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to, I'm going to work out my salvation through fear and trembling. And I'm going to say, Jesus, would you forgive me of that? I'm sorry. And he says, yes, I'll forgive you. Now, let's not do it again, okay? Let's work on that one. Let's work on that sexual addiction. Let's work on that thing. Whatever that issue is, let's work on that spending habit. Let's work on it. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. See, I think that our society today has gotten so much against work that we think we just fall into Christianity. We don't fall into Christianity. There's no halfway going with God. Luke chapter, 20, chapter 10, verse 27. If you think that there's anything here that God says you can do halfway, this should tell you you can't. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then, love your neighbor. I don't see any halfway here, do you? John 14, verse 15 to 21. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Thank you. God, he gave the Holy Spirit to be my helper because I can't do this on my own. I have to have the Holy Spirit to help. The Spirit of the truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Wow. Amen. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then go down to a couple verses, 23 and 24. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching." My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. These words are not, I'm not telling, Mike Way's not telling you these words. I am just the messenger. Okay? Would you hear the truth? Would you hear the message this morning? So where are you at today? In your heart, in the tending of your heart, First of all, let me ask you, has it been tenderized? <laughs> has the blood of Christ been applied to your heart to soften it? Have you accepted Jesus in your life today? Have you really accepted him? And are you really working that now, keeping the garden tended? This is not a works-based salvation at all. Salvation is the gift of God. 
we're now coming back to the, God's original intention, and that is to work the garden. Tend it. Protect it. Keep the weeds from coming back in. Keep the level of distractions away from you so that you will have a redemption story at the end of the day. Will you look at your life today a little differently this week and ask God to show you the areas that you need to cultivate and dig up and pull the weeds that's trying to take root in your life? Would you protect those areas? Will you purposely look at working differently, a little, a little differently this week? You know, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Palm Sunday culminates in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you hear that? Life became in the Garden of Eden. New life begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus there said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he sweat great drops of blood there. He knew what he was doing for you and for me to tenderize my garden. His blood tenderized the Garden of Gethsemane. His blood tenderizes the Garden of Mike Way. And he tenderizes your heart. Would you close your eyes with me, please? Father, hmm. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being in that Garden of Gethsemane and being faithful to the work that you needed to do, that you accomplished the work, that you fulfilled, that you made your faith alive. You put your faith into action that day, that week, that time, so that I can live today. I so thank you for that. And now, God, that I've received you in my heart and my life, I pray that you would help me to guard my heart, that you would guard my garden. God, that I would be given the tools by the power of the Holy Spirit that I could weed out the things that would come to me that would be the distractions in my life. God, I come against the devil right now in the name of Jesus for deception. Lord, for all those, including myself here, that have allowed the enemy to come in and deceive me with, did God really say... Did God really say you shouldn't do that? But the words, but I can. The Bible doesn't say anything, but I can't. But did, so did God really say? I mean, do we not see the logic here of the enemy's attacks? So God, I pray that you give us strength, that you give us the fulfillment of who you are. This morning, if you're struggling in your life and if you want Jesus to be new to you, would you raise your hand? I'm just going to ask you real quick. I see that hand. If you just want Jesus to be new in your life again today, and if you just want that garden to be retenderized, I see your hand. Thank you. This is, I see your hand. It, this is awesome. This is, this is what it's all about, folks. This is what, this is what Palm Sunday is all about. What the, garden of, this is what the Garden of Eden and Garden of Gethsemane is all about. Asking Jesus. Now, let's just pray. Father, I thank you for every person that has acknowledged that they need you more. God, it takes work to say that. It takes work to raise the hand. God, it's not self-righteousness. It's just saying, God, would we, we apply the blood. We apply your sacrifice on our lives today. Thank you. Thank you. Now, for those that are here today that will commit with me, and don't do this unless you're really committing to it, but will you look at work in your garden a little differently this week? 
Will, will you look at it to be more of a, what God wants to accomplish in your life this week? And if you're willing to commit your life this week and to say, God, teach me something new. Give me a new revelation of what it means to work in my garden. If you're committed to that, would you raise your hand and show the Lord that you're committed to it? Amen. I see those hands. Amen. Father, I just come before you now in Jesus' name. Lord, you've seen the hands that were raised, Lord, and, and they were raised out of free will. They were, re- they were raised to you to show you, God, that we're serious about this and that we really want you to come in and rework our gardens and then to give us fullness in our gardens. God, that our gardens would be, would be ripe of with fruit, eternal fruit. Oh, God, you're so awesome. Awesome. Go with us this week, I pray. In Jesus' name.